Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've been running conversations with some of the best guitar players in the game for over a year now. Not only has this been amazing for myself and A.L. to learn from, but it's been amazing for us to share this vast knowledge with all of you. If you enjoy what we're doing, then please share us with your friends, and we especially love iTunes reviews. Remember that you can tag us if you want to share the podcast on your Instagram. You can find me at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S. And you can find Al at Al Levy URM Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. Always remember that we will never charge you for this podcast. So please keep listening and enjoying. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on to this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is one of my favorite guitar players and people in the metal scene. Sammy Duet is the guitarist of Goat Whore, but he was also an acid bath and crowbar. It's got quite an impressive uh, history and really some of the best tone I've ever heard in my entire life, hands down. Here goes. Sammy Duet, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Yes, thank you for having me. It's nice to talk to you. I think the last time I saw you must have been New Year's Eve or right around New Year's Eve 2009 to 2010 when I came to New Orleans. Yes, I, I kind of remember that. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of remember it too. It was New Year's Eve in New Orleans. <laughs> what do you expect's going to happen, you know? <laughs> I just have a vague recollection of you coming out, and that's about where it ends. Yeah, you know, you know how we roll in New Orleans, man. Yeah, I do. I want to say that um, since we toured with you guys back then, uh, I have been paying attention to how people play rhythm, like, you know, through the years. And I still haven't really encountered anyone who pulls it off the way you do and not to kiss your ass or anything. But I remember when we would tour with you guys, Emil and I would be like, fuck, man, how do you get rhythm tone like Sammy's? Like, how the fuck does he do it? Because you had, like, nothing... I mean, you had all the Randalls and everything, but it was all, like, in your picking style. That's the conclusion I came to. I mean, the gear's cool, but, like, your right hand is just a fucking machine. It's kind of the way that I hold the pick, almost. Because it almost... It, I never really realized it until, like, maybe a couple of years ago. It's almost like adding a harmonic in there, but really subtle that you can kind of hear. It's, it's, it's the, the, the effect that I'm trying to go for with that. It's, and this will make complete sense. It's like my favorite guitar tone on all of all time is Tom G warrior from his early Celtic frost albums. But I, I actually played his guitar Okay, and what he does, 
And this is kind of going to be blasphemy to a lot of people, but this is how he gets that tone is he turns the tone knob off. I, I like, I went down. Really? Yes. I went through this whole weird, like I, it, I went through this whole thing where it was like scientific experiments to try to get this guy's tone. So what he does, I have it all figured out. He usually, he turns his tone knob off, but he uses this low output, like cheap Ibanez pickup that the way when the way it reacts when he turns his tone knob off, it doesn't get all like fuzzy and kind of muddy and woofy. It almost acts like it's almost like a cocked wah. It's very strange how it works. But uh, he does that, and when he compensates for what he loses by turning the tone knob off, he cranks with a tube screamer. So he gets this weird harmonic kind of overtone thing and i've always tried to replicate that and i've always failed because every time i've turned the tone knob off of a guitar it turned into like this pile of weird shit yes so i guess over time just like it just kind of stuck in my head to where like the way i would hit the strings it would kind of create that kind of harmonic overtone it's, it's weird I, I that's the only way i could really explain it how did you figure this out uh, sitting there and trying to replicate this guy's tone, like being super obsessive about it. It's like it became like a natural thing to me to where when I'd hit the strings, kind of creating that harmonic thing. I always felt like there was like an extra layer of something when I would hear uh, your rhythm tone. And that's what I was always trying to figure out is like, what it, what is that? Like there's, because there was no no crazy effects plugged in, nothing like. But there was something about it that always sounded extra. So it could be what it is. That could be a little bit of that. It could be the pickup that I use is really fucking wacky. What do you use? I use a Seymour Duncan Blackout Metal AHB2. See, there's a regular Blackout, and it's really kind of scooped where the blackout metal HB2 is like bumped up in the lows and the mids and kind of cut down on the highs. And it's like... Is that what you used back in the day? Yes, I've been using that okay. pickup for a very long time. I think maybe, you know, there's a lot of things in this equation that kind of add up to the whole, to the final result. I think it's the, the way that I pick, that pickup in particular... And the way I set my overdrive is has a lot to do with it because a lot of guys will boost like the tone and the high end. I'll actually cut it back. And the overdrive that I was using at the time had like also like a bass boost. So I turn up some of that to give it some of that ass. So I, I think it was just kind of a combination of different things to get that sound the randall's got something to do with it too well the randall's if you plug the randall's in with like a les paul just a stock les paul and like no overdrive it'll sound pretty close to a jcm 800 so it's not something special that the Randalls are doing. They do have their own thing but that's the closest comparison that i could get to the randall's that i use to where it's not like some kind of you know magical mythical amp 
it sounds even the older ones, you know, kind of had that's what they were trying to do. Like the ones that Dimebag used, basically, what they were trying to do is make a solid state amp that sounded like a JCM eight hundred. Interesting. I didn't realize that. So, all the I guess all the extra aggression and uh, evil is coming from everything you're doing to the amp, basically. Yes. Yes, exactly. Because the, the pickup in particular is extremely high gain. Like it's like out of, it's the high it's the hottest pickup I've ever used. You know, it's and I've have tried a lot of other things and nothing even comes close. It's like almost like there's a tube screamer built into the pickup. It's pretty gnarly. It's not you can't get like you can plug that pickup into a Fender Twin set as clean as you possibly can get it and it'll still break it up. Yeah, I used to have one of the blackouts. I don't remember which one, but I remember it being hot as fuck. Yeah, but this one in particular, it's not like the standard blackout. It's, I came across it by accident because I got a deal with Seymour Duncan for a while and I saw it and I had the regular blackouts and I was like, and eh, they're, they're okay. But then I was like, on a whim, I was just like, send me one of these. And after I plugged that in, I was like, yeah, this is this is the one. Sold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you consider yourself a hard picker? Yes. I tried not to be because I was having some problems. Like uh, for a period of time when we were touring, I was noticing that my right hand was like getting really worn out really quick. I had to kind of think back and I was like, okay, there's something I could, there's something I'm doing wrong here. <laughs> so I kind of had to dial it back a little bit on how hard I was actually picking and just like kind of concentrate on not really tensing up a whole lot when I was playing. It was, it, it was a very awkward time in my life, <laughs> but yes, I, I do consider myself a hard picker. And speaking of that, you know, we had, uh, we were recording our record, um, Constricting Rage for the Merciless. And I was working with Eric Rutan, and we, he was like, well, we're going to send all the guitars to this guy and get all the guitars intonated. This is my guy. Just to be double sure, everything's fine. And I was like, all right. So we bring the guitar to the tech guy and uh, getting it intonated and, you know, just give it a good once over before we start recording. And it was me and Eric. And uh, as you know, Eric Rutan is a very hard picker as well. And a perfectionist. Yes. We were talking to the guy that's getting it set up, and the guy asked me, he was like, well, do you pick hard? Because I'll, I'll intonate it a little bit, like, flatter to compensate for the, you know, for the attack. And uh, I go, yeah, I think I'll pick pretty hard. And he looks at Eric, he goes, Eric, does he pick hard, really? And Eric goes, yeah, he picks pretty hard. <laughs> I understand why he asked. A lot of people think that they pick hard or are tight and they're just not connected to reality. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's quite interesting as well. The good guitar techs that you see live as well are the ones that analyze people's playing individually because there's a lot of guitar techs that hand you a guitar and it's just completely out of tune to how you play. So it's actually quite interesting that he asked you to Show him how you picked. Working with Eric Rutan is like everything has to be absolutely fucking perfect. It's really 
stressful, but the end result is like the guitar tracks will come out fucking amazing, you know? Do you think it helps that he's also a guitar player? Yes. I mean, I've worked with a bunch of other guys on different albums and, you know, as guitar players, or three guitar players right here, <laughs> you'll understand this, that a lot of these guys don't really focus so much on the guitar to where, you know, when I was working with Eric, we would just kind of, it was like three or four days just going through the rig and going through guitars and going through pedals and fucking just insane shit, just swapping out preamp tubes and just crazy shit. But I was like, dude, can I start fucking tracking already, man? <laughs> I fucking forgot the fucking songs because we've been fucking with a goddamn guitar tone. Not to say that, you know, we were having problems with the guitar tone. It's just like we, as me and Eric, both guitar tone, guitar players and just, you know, just tweakers and just freaking out and just trying to get the heaviest fucking guitar sound we possibly could. You know, just and we went down this fucking rabbit hole, and I was like, "Man, it's it's time to track, dude. This shit sounds fucking badass." I totally get it. On one of the Doth records, I believe it took us ten days to get the rhythm tone, and man, we were not in a good mental state by the time we started tracking it. But the tone that we settled on was fucking devastating. Like it was great, but to get to that point. Just, man, like every head combined with every guitar, combined with every cabinet, combined with every microphone, combined with every pedal, just to see. Right. That's kind of what happened when, when we were doing that with Eric, but we didn't go that far as like trying different amps and different cabinets and stuff. Because we knew that the core was the Randall cabinets and the Randall yep. head. You know, we dialed that in as good as we possibly could get it. Then we started screwing around with pedals. And then we started screwing around with guitars. And the funny thing is that we went right back to where we started. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say that. Like, we settled on a devastating tone, but the part that was kind of depressing was that it was the same, the first setup we tried. Yes, exactly. It yeah. was like, we tried all this shit and then we settled back to just my original ESP custom with this, with the Seaboard Dog and Blackout and a Digitech Bad Monkey, which I've been using forever. In my, in my I remember. Life. Yes. And that's what always just goes back to that. Even though we could try all this expensive, crazy, awesome shit, it goes back to that combination. Yeah, I remember you being like, bad monkey, dude, bad monkey. Like, you're all about the bad monkey. It is one of the most underrated overdrive <laughs> pedals, I think. It's a secret that a lot of people don't know about because, I mean, the thing about the bad monkey is that you can make it sound like a tube screamer, you know, if that's what you're going for. But then it has a lot of different shit you can do with it, like the, the low end add knob on added on it like makes a humongous difference for me you know because i think a lot of tube screamers and tube screamer variants you know they are lacking in the low end you know and i i love i'm from new orleans man i'm from fucking sludge central i play 
with a lot of fucking low end, you know? <laughs> Do you reckon it comes down to what you're used to playing when it came to the guitar tone? Because I think that that probably has an element of it feeling like home as well. Yeah, that too. But like Al was saying earlier, it's a certain sound that kind of that bad monkey gives that Randall amp with that pickup. Yeah, it's very specific. I've never heard anything else like it. It's a secret weapons, man. Yeah, but dude, someone could buy that exact same rig, get the same guitars you play, same pickups, everything, and they're not going to sound like that. It's the picking hand, man. <laughs> you know, it's it's a combination of a lot of different things. But that's the part that you can't buy. Like that's the part that you can't you can't recreate that part. That's that's down to the individual no matter what gear. Yeah, there's one guy, a friend of mine in Mississippi that has it down, that he figured it yeah, out. He yeah, he figured it out. He figured out the way that I hold my pick and the way it kind of creates that kind of harmonic thing. One guy. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you bastard. How the fuck <laughs> did you do that? Because <laughs> we were, I was, he's a friend of mine from Mississippi and we were jamming and uh, I brought my like signature overdrive over to his house and he has like a Randall as well. So we plugged it in. I, I noticed that from a lot of people jamming on my stuff that, you know, they, it, it'll sound close, but it won't sound like what I do. He was hit. I was like, God damn, dude, that sounds like it's supposed to sound. He's like, yeah, I figured out how you pick, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does come down to that at the end of the day, I think the way somebody picks, like I just know from recording so many guitar players that the way they pick defines so much of how things are going to go and how they sound. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I think it's like, it's kind of overlooked by a lot of guitar players, you know, how important, how important your picking hand needs to be, you know? I think it's like probably the most overlooked thing. Brown, don't you think that? Yeah, yeah. Well, everyone focuses on this hand, you know, the frets. No one spends the time on this one. I remember when I was a kid, I had a guitar tutor and uh, he always said to me that the the hand that holds the pick is the most important hand on the guitar. And I didn't really know what he meant until I started recording myself. The moment I started recording, everything sounded like ass. And then I spent the time that I should have spent when I was learning. Um, but yeah, the, the picking hand, like uh, no one sounds like anyone that has a good picking hand. It makes it really, really unique. And you can really identify all the players over the years that have had a really strong picking hand. I agree, yes. What about tightness? Like, what did you do to develop that? Dude, I went down this rabbit hole of, like, trying to figure out, like, these picking exercises. Because, like, when we first started really developing Goat Whore, I was listening to like a bunch of crazy like black metal fucking albums like and all these dudes are just tremolo picking the whole fucking time like chords and stuff. And I really became obsessed with that. I was like, man, if, and I, I was like, man, I really fucking suck at this shit. <laughs> so I went down this rabbit hole of trying to figure out, you know, all these picking exercises to try to get faster with my picking hand. And then I just found stuff that worked with for me. And then I just kind of started really utilizing that in my practice routine, you know, and it's still to this day, I utilize them, you know, to where, you know, I could tell when I've been slacking, 
And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I just like, man, fuck this. I got to start fucking picking up these exercises again and start fucking playing them like almost every day, you know? Man, the black metal stuff actually requires a lot of stamina. Yes. The tremolo picking full chords for like an entire set, it's actually a lot harder than people realize. The album that really freaked me out when I heard that stuff was um was more Duke, Heaven Shall Burn When We Are Gathered. Because that whole album is just like, that dude is tremolo picking every fucking riff chords i mean it's like the whole fucking album like jesus christ and you know and that really had an effect on the way i was developing my picking hand you know yeah but like you don't do that the whole time you've got like actual like heavy ass riffs and patterns and all kinds of different stuff i feel like uh you've got the black metal in there but that's not the whole story well, I mean, it's that whole fucking thrash metal influence that's coming back when I was a kid. You know, it's still, it's going to be ingrained in my DNA until I die. You know, listening to fucking old Slayer, Exodus, fucking Metallica records. You know, that's, you know, another equation to the fucking part, you know. So do you, could you describe what any of these exercises are? Like, what kind of stuff is it? It's just, it's really simple, but it's like you got to sit there with a metronome. And it's like, okay, what I normally do, I'll just start on like the second heavy string, what would be my F string, because I tune to C. And I do just start with a metronome and you go in 60 notes where it'd be like just alternate picking, like for 30 seconds. And you do this, and it's three pattern. And you do them like for, I think it's like for, you do it four times each. So you do the, the alternate picking for 30 seconds, at a comfortable metronome to where it's like up and down. Then you do up picking for 30 seconds. And then you do the top two strings to where you start on the bottom and go to the top to where it's to where the whole exercise would be like for 30 seconds, non stopping. Then you go to up picking for 30 seconds to where it's like that, 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 that. Then you go to the two strings where it's like da, 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 for 30 seconds. And you do it for four times each. You practice up picking. Yes. Interesting. That is a realm that I'm scared to enter. <laughs> <laughs> it helps a lot. I can imagine. Because it's so awkward and not a lot of people think about it, but you know, it actually helps with the alternate picking. It's very strange, you know, but it, it was this exercise I found. I forgot who fucking did it. This was like years and years ago from uh, it was an excerpt from a DVD from like the rock house method or something like this. I forgot what the guy's name was, but he showed that exercise, but he was doing up on the high strings. And I was like, what if I utilize this on the lower strings to help my rhythm playing? And it, that's like been my go to picking exercise ever since. Well, that is where a lot of players are super weak is with their upstrokes and that is why their alternate picking tends to fall apart is because their upstrokes are just i mean weak basically yeah i mean there's no other way to say it so yeah yeah i was trying to think of a more clever word but <laughs> weak that's yeah but that's that that exercise i that's like my go-to when i when we have to start touring or recording and i have to you know get my playing in shape really fucking quick I do that like at least once a day, if not twice a day, 
you know. For how long? I mean, I know there's 30 seconds, then 30 seconds, but like how long in total? To do the entire exercise, I think it takes between four and six minutes. I'm not entirely okay. sure. But if you do that without stopping, <laughs> yeah, it definitely makes a fucking difference. Oh, yeah. Without stopping is uh, it's a whole other beast. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the point of the exercise. So it's six minutes of that nonstop, like not even taking a break for a second, just getting through the whole thing without stopping your picking hand for six minutes. So this is almost like a, not only a tightness exercise, but also an endurance exercise at the same time. Yes, it definitely develops your stamina, like big fucking time. Do you find that your right hand has this really warm feeling after you've finished that exercise? I find that when the exercise is right, this hand just goes completely warm in a really good way. I'm wondering if uh, you get the same thing. Yeah, like for the first week that I do it, if I haven't done it for a while, you definitely feel that, uh, you feel it in your hand and your arm. But once, you know, you get used to it and you start doing it more, you start to relax with it. The muscles are starting to build up, you know. How intense is a goat horse set from a stamina perspective? Like if you were to go on tour not having prepped like that, would you be feeling the pain? Basically, I would probably be playing sloppy as fucking shit. And my arm would probably be probably about half an hour into the set would probably be ready to fall off <laughs> <laughs> because I, and it all depends on the songs that we play as well, you know, because, you know, we have some more songs that are very, very easy to play. So it all depends on the set itself, you know, because. If we throw in a bunch of those crazy fucking songs, then, you know, if I'm not prepared for it, I'm going to have a rough fucking time. <laughs> Sounds painful. You have to prepare for it. That's a trick is you can't go in there dry. You know, that's why, you know, we we try to rehearse. <laughs> we try to rehearse as a band at least five times consecutively before we fucking do any show. Like five days in a row? Yes, nonstop. At least just go over the set like in its entirety. And if anything needs extra work after we practice the set, we'll go over those songs or a particular part or whatever, you know? You know, it's interesting you guys do that because a lot of bands now, a lot of newer bands don't even rehearse, which is crazy. They just get together for the tour and shows one through five are the rehearsal, <laughs> which is insane. I've heard of that before. It was a, we were doing some shows with a with suffocation. They're like that. And they're badass. Yeah. And it was the first show. You'll remember this place, Mark's show place. Where? It was like, I think in New Hampshire somewhere. And it was. Okay. Yes. It was a place. I know we played there with Doth a few times and it's like, they have the venue on one side, that shitty strip club on the other side. Yes. And everybody, I know what you're talking everybody, about. <laughs> and everybody that works there fucking sucks. <laughs> <laughs> like they were the biggest fucking assholes you could ever encounter. I have vague recollections of that place. I could tell you stories of where we almost fucking fought with those motherfuckers, but that's, we'll talk about that later. Um, but the first show we did, it was like, we were doing a run with suffocation and, uh, I was hanging out with, uh, Terrence cause me and Terrence, we, we go way back. And, uh, 
It was their first show. It was our first show. We had met up at that place for the first show. Ah, of course. And uh, I was just bullshitting with them, catching up. And I was like, so, so how, so how do rehearsals go for the show? And he goes, rehearsal. It's like tonight is a rehearsal. <laughs> I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, we don't fucking rehearse. It's like you better have your shit together, ready to play, or fucking you gone. <laughs> That's brave. Yeah. I mean, especially for like suffocation, it's not exactly easy stuff to play. No, I mean, the bands I know that do this are not like, they're not shitty bands. That's what's crazy about it. They're not shitty bands. They, they're all very, very awesome. Um, they just don't rehearse. I just, I don't get it. That would, that would give me nightmares. Yeah. I mean, for all, my own peace of mind, I have to rehearse with the fucking band at least for a minimum, at least three times, you know, so just to get the sea legs back and stuff, you know, if I had to go on stage and say, all right, we have a show booked in fucking Montana and we're going to fly in, but we can't, we're all just going to meet there and we're not going to rehearse. I would be, I would be fucking having a heart attack basically <laughs> done it once done it once never again never again yeah how, how did it go well we um so we did a stint it was about five months of straight touring with maybe like two or three weeks in the middle where we had it off and um, we had a replacement drummer alex Runinger, who i think that al's familiar with yeah he's amazing yeah, I know Alex Stewart. Ah, yeah, cool. Awesome. Well, we uh, we showed up in Seattle and we'd never played with Alex before. And about 40 minutes after that, we went on stage. We practiced through the set once. Fuck that. And got up on stage. Dude, it was, it was horrible. The main reason for this is that you can practice all you want with the CD. You know, the tracks that are recorded. It doesn't feel anywhere near the same and it feels even weirder between drummers because every drummer has like their own weird feel like uh yeah i just i can't understand why bands would get up on stage without rehearsing it's actually terrifying i'm getting anxiety thinking about it to be honest <laughs> i mean and alex is an awesome drummer so that's like the best scenario you could hope for is a drummer that good right but it was so different to mike like it's uh alex is like stupidly on the beat it's like a, you know, a complete machine, whereas Mike is more behind the beat. So when I was playing with Alex, I felt like I was playing the songs five times faster than they were. <laughs> Even though he wasn't ahead of the beat, it just felt different and my arm felt more tired from it. So, yeah, it's just rehearse before you go on tour. Fuck that. Another thing about that as well is like rehearsing before you go on tour is you could have a better time on stage. To me, personally, I know if I would be thrown into that scenario you were just talking about, <laughs> I would be like a feet cemented to the stage, just like not entertaining people while I was playing. You know what I'm saying? Because, I mean, that's, you know, you got to go up there and look like you're having fun or the crowd is just going to be like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, if you're super anxious about it, there's no way you're going to have a good time. Yeah, exactly, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, remember, <laughs> <laughs> I just remembered a second time it happened as well. Oh, second time. I thought it was only once. No, twice. We played in Romania at this festival, Rockstadt, I think it was called. And there was one song we'd never played live before and we'd never rehearsed it and played it. Oh, man. That's terrible, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fucking terrifying. Yeah, it was. Uh, that was a fun day. 
I'm guessing that Goat Whore doesn't just pull songs out that you've never played. We have done that in the past to where we've done we've done shows to where, you know, we don't really rehearse an encore or anything. We just kind of do our set. Every once in a while we've done that, but we were really how can I say that? We picked like the easiest song possible to play from our back catalog. It's like, do you remember <laughs> how they play a song? It's like, yeah, yeah, it's like this. It's like, all right, let's do it. And not saying Luck. it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Satan was definitely on our side when we uh, performed those songs because we were like, eh, we haven't played this in a while, but it was like, it's an easy song, but somebody's going to hit a bad note somewhere. <laughs> I seriously get recurring nightmares about that. So I'll have this recurring nightmare that like the band is back together. We haven't played in like 10 years and there's a festival show or something. We haven't even seen each other and we just have to like show up and play this like festival in front of like 50,000 people with like 10 years of no rehearsal, like not playing the songs, nothing. And uh, it's just this super intense stress stream. I always wake up fucking scared <laughs> and like heart pounding. That would be the worst case scenario. <laughs> I mean, like if Acid Bath was to be like, suddenly there's this Acid Bath reunion and you're playing, you're opening for Metallica tomorrow or something. I would be like, look, tonight, I don't care what has to happen. We're getting together and we're fucking at least going over a couple of songs, if not everything. That would not end well. <laughs> that would not end well at all. I, I would instate the, uh, the Danzig law and be like, no phone recordings at all. <laughs> so we'd probably embarrass ourselves pretty bad on, at that point. I didn't know that was the Danzig law, but it makes sense. <laughs> I, I could see that happening. Yeah, he he did something where it was like, uh, no, we, you know, as soon as somebody sees somebody recording, he, he fucking freaks out and tries to grab the camera from him or something. I've heard about that at like pop shows and stuff, but you know, makes sense. I, I could I could see that shit happening at a dancing show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I love Glenn and all that shit, but he he's got his own agenda, you know. <laughs> didn't he knock like didn't he steal someone's phone and like chuck it at a gig he did so, he tried to <laughs> bite somebody by trying to get their phone it was this it's fucking uh, he's i have to give it to him he is the real fucking deal but he like tried to jump in the fucking crowd and like grab somebody's phone and bite them and stuff <laughs> Which, yeah, that's why I love the guy. You know, dude, don't give a fuck. <laughs> ne never has. No. Which is kind of cool. That's how legends are made. It's true. <laughs> what do you think it is about Acid Bath that makes people still love it this far into the future? Let's start at the beginning. You know, when we were together. That was a long time ago. Yeah, oh, yeah. You're talking about the early, mid-90s and stuff. I think we stopped... We stopped playing together like around 96, 97, somewhere around there. So you're talking about the whole from like 94 to 97, somewhere around there. You know, when we started, you know, nobody was into it. The, the, you know, the whole, the only place we would do good would be in New Orleans and the surrounding areas. I mean, I didn't hear about it till it was long over. 
Yeah, it's very strange how that happened. You know, we did, you know, we'd go on tour with, we did tours with like, uh, we did this one tour where it was like us, Samael from uh, Switzerland, Can uh, Grave from Sweden, and Cannibal Corpse. And this is like the Cannibal Corpse, like right when they did the Ace Ventura thing and they released the Bleeding and they were like, the death metal band, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, they were massive. Yeah, so we did that tour opening that up, and every night was packed. And I still remember, you know, going on stage and playing, and people just looking at us like, what the fuck <laughs> is this, you know? <laughs> and uh, I guess it was, I hate to say it like this, but I guess it was like almost before its time. I would agree with that statement. The, the word kind of just started spreading around about the band, you know, after the fact that we had broken up and stuff, you know, because like when we were together, that was like, you know, death metal was king. You know, if you weren't just growling and blasting and just fucking chugging away, you know, you you weren't cool. You know, they, I mean, you know, that was a period of time. It, not only were you not cool, but like it could get kind of scary in the death metal scene back then. Yeah. The thing that kind of got us exempt from all that kind of scariness would be that the lyrics and the artwork were so tied in with the fucking disturbing content, you know, to where we got the past. If we would have been singing about, if it would have been like, uh, I hate to make a comparison like this, but if the lyrics would have been kind of like, you know, the deaf tones or corn or anything like that, then we probably wouldn't have got the pass that we did. But being that the lyrics and the imagery was so disturbing. It was pretty fucking disturbing. The death metal people kind of accepted it to an extent. I mean, think about a band like Cynic, for instance. They had a horrible time trying to tour with death metal bands in that same time period, and they did not get the pass. And they it took them, what, like 15 years to do their reunion. And then then they were widely accepted by the metal community. But when they came out and they also toured with Cannibal Corpse, man, they got shit thrown at them. They got attacked. Like it was all kinds of horrible shit. Yeah. Just goes to show you how passionate the death metal fans are, you know? That's a one way to put it. <laughs> well, I, I think the John Wayne Gacy artwork definitely was like, we are your kind. Definitely. You know, I mean, that that was the whole point of that artwork was to fucking freak everybody out because, I mean, we couldn't when we were trying to decide on artwork, we couldn't agree on anything. You know, we brought in a bunch of stuff and then we came across the idea of the John Wayne Gacy artwork and we were like, I mean, it's a clown, but... <laughs> what's the what's the backstory of this clown in particular you know and the actual murderer painted this for people who don't know he was a serial killer who was like a community leader who would hold parties dressed as that clown lots of people who went to those parties ended up under his house yes basically long story short yeah he, he yeah exactly and those paintings were self-portraits yes <laughs> yes basically psychopath he's a unique individual let's just put it that way <laughs> how did you get that did you have to like i guess license it or get permission or well what what happened was rotten records actually brought up the idea and we were like okay 
but there was this guy that we were kind of mutual friends with that uh, collected a lot of that stuff. Like it was this guy named Ken Cornick from Tampa, Florida. Of course he's from Florida. <laughs> <laughs> he would like write these guys. He would co- he would buy their artwork. He would go visit them in jail. Like he was like into the whole serial killer thing. And he had this massive collection of just like John Wayne Gacy stuff. He had like Richard Ramirez stuff. He had Kenneth Bianchi stuff. Like he had, he had a lot of shit from these fucking maniacs. Greatest hits. Yeah. So we, uh, we licensed the artwork from him to use it for the album artwork. What an obsession is such an interesting, uh, weird ass obsession. I don't meet many people anymore were all about that i think that was like a distinctly 90s thing is the those people that were way too into serial killers this guy was definitely one of them (laughs) maybe it's just me but like i haven't seen that much lately i feel like that scene kind of went away or something or maybe it's like hidden or something yeah it's still it's still there there's some holdouts it's more underground and not so like a in public, you know what I'm saying? The people that are still seriously into that aren't really being so open with it, you know? <laughs> Camera well, phones I, everywhere. That's why. Was that? <laughs> Camera phones everywhere. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I think it was very different in the 90s, you know? There's no internet. Like, people could, I think, get into crazy shit and not have it affect the rest of their life. Like, now... Yeah. <laughs> got to be careful. If you care about the future, your own future, <laughs> yeah. you kind of got to be careful these days. Yeah, you got to be careful what you say and what you do nowadays because if somebody catches the wrong thing, even if it's in jest on the phone, that's it. You're done. Yeah. Got to be very, very careful. Uh, I think the 90s were a completely different world like that. With all that disturbing imagery, and I feel like that's been something that even though like goat whore isn't like, about the same kind of disturbing imagery. Like this darkness has been a part of your musical output the entire time. You've been very, very consistent about it, but I've known you now since like 2006, I think. So when we did that cattle decap tour, uh, you've always been very helpful, cool, positive kind of uh, vibe to be around, which is interesting because the music that you've put out is just so fucking dark. What do you think that's all about? Well, I used to be at that period in time where we first met and all that stuff. I was heavily, heavily into like the Levain type of Satanism. What I got from that whole philosophy is that if someone is good to you, be good back to them. And if someone is fucking shitty to you, be shitty to them. 10 times worse. Ultimately, in a nutshell, it's like the satanic philosophy, like as far as Anton LaVey kind of philosophy goes. So, I mean, that's the only way I can really explain it, you know? I mean, you guys were the band that uh, actually helped us out, not like helped us out like in the industry, but helped us out as in like, this is how you behave like a professional band. Uh, This is what you should do with your gear before you go on stage. Like all this super important stuff that bands who have been around for a while already know. We didn't, we definitely 
did not know that shit because we got signed really fast out the gate and we're suddenly touring kind of before we were ready. And people could have been total dicks about it. Some were, but you guys were just cool. And uh, after touring with you guys, we knew how to behave ourselves in a much more professional way, uh, like the way bands should. And then it made me think about, because a few years later, we toured with you again. We did that hell tour that, <laughs> that summer, remember, uh, with like, uh, with, uh, who was it? Abigail Williams. Oh, yeah. Else. That, that one that just went on for like two and a half months. And I remember that one day Ben sat the whole tour down. And I think it was in Vancouver or Portland or no, it, it was in God damn it. The starlight room. It was in Edmonton. Yeah. He sat them down like kids. And then he was like, this doesn't count for Doth. You guys are fine. <laughs> but then he basically scolded everybody on that tour, like a bunch of children. Cause they were doing all that stuff that we used to do before, like on those first tours, like, just leaving gear everywhere, like taking forever, like all that amateur hour shit. Like I, he fucking, it was like the high school principal <laughs> setting everybody straight. It was fucking amazing, but he exempted us. It was great. <laughs> but I remember that absolutely clear as day because there was no gear on the stage. Nobody had loaded in yet. And he says, I want every motherfucker on this tour in front of the stage right now. <laughs> and he gets on the stage and everybody from the tours basically, he said, except for y'all, <laughs> except for Doc. So they have all the other bands. I, I forget the other three bands that were on the tour, but they're all standing in front of the stage. He's on the stage and he's like, look, if y'all can't fucking do y'all set changes on time, I'm sending bands home. If you can't get your gear out the building where you're done in a timely fashion, I'm sending bands home. Fuck, like he had had enough. Like, but they were yeah. like, I forget what band it was or a couple of bands. Like the the set times we were going on like an hour behind schedule. You know, you know, a band takes ten minutes extra here. A band takes two ten minutes extra there, getting on and off stage. It was fucking ridiculous, you know. And by the time we got on stage, you know, the show was supposed to be over an hour ago. There were people walking out, you know, because I gotta go to work or whatever, you know. I remember. <laughs> It was fucking us, you know, and Ben was like, I ain't having this shit. And anybody starts fucking slacking, you could go fucking home. And some people did. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> true. Yes. I think there was like every band lost members. That was the tour that if you survived that tour, you got like badass motherfucker points. You know what I'm saying? Was it that bad? I almost survived. <laughs> I got swine flu, so I had to leave. Ah. I remember that. I almost died. So that's my excuse. But that's a legitimate excuse. You got sick. You know, anybody who didn't get sick or just left because they couldn't hack it. I waited as long as I possibly could. Cause like, I remember we played in Nashville and I was like feeling the swine flu, like hardcore. And I went to the hospital after that Nashville show and then just came right back. And then we played like five more shows. It was just getting worse and worse and worse. And by, I think it was Hartford, Connecticut. It was just like, dudes, you got to do this without me. Like, I'm going to fucking die. And I went and they didn't let me leave for like 13 days. It was by the time the tour was over. That was when I was getting out. Jesus Christ, man. Yeah, it was nuts. You have a pass on that one, you know. <laughs> Thank you. 
It sucks that you had to wait till Connecticut, though. You were quite close to home in Nashville. True. <laughs> yeah, you should you should have called it early, man. But you know, I have to. I'm gonna give it to a fucking Al. You know, he stuck it out. He could have. He could have. He could have cheated and went home early when it's. Oh, I'm only a couple hours away from my house. That was not going to happen. I had to be close to death. <laughs> I, I'm the same way. Yeah, close to death. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, like for real, it had to be, I feel like to leave a tour for me to feel okay about it, it's got to be like, you got to be like legitimately almost dead or something. Yes. I, I, I'm, I'm in the same boat with you. You know, I mean, I've been sick on tours before, but I'm like, you know, I, I could have been a little, you know, sissy and be like, Oh, feel good. Let's cancel this show. Like, no, it's, it's not an option. <laughs> It's not an option. Get up there and fucking play and fucking power through it and see what happens tomorrow, you know? Even for the States, two and a half months seems excessive. It went around the States twice. Don't forget we went into Canada as well. Yeah. And we were like in Canada. We were in Canada for like a week and a half or something crazy like that. Oh, what did you do like the Regina, Winnipeg? Oh, yeah. All of that. All of it. Oh. Y'all played with us at Prince George. Remember that? It was like six hours away from Alaska. Yes. That show was like insane where they're like kids in the front, like taking their bullet belts off and like shaking them and headbanging while we were playing. <laughs> that, was, that was awesome, man. Like Prince George, they know how to party, man. I mean, it's so far out there. I, we played some out there places. There was also the the reservation in the middle of, I believe, Arizona in the desert, like just in the middle of nowhere we went to some far out places yeah we played some places on that tour that a lot of bands have never played before and probably not since yeah exactly i mean i had a good time we're still here what does it take for you to cancel a show like you were saying basically where i physically cannot perform the show to where i'm like i can't move cuz i'm so sick you know or the pain so intolerable that I have to go to the hospital. Like, for me to cancel a show, I have to go to the fucking hospital, basically. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> That's legit. Yeah. <laughs> as far as that goes, you know, if I can physically perform the show, I will. I might be miserable up there and feeling like shit, but I'll go up there and do it. And I've seen you guys go through some crazy shit and then just keep on going. I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that worked now that i think about it you know i guess we were just kind of on autopilot at that point and just being like well i'll just say it you know like just being hung over like to where we were feeling near death you know just you were that hung over <laughs> like no i mean like a really bad hangover like staying up until six o'clock the following morning and having to play the show that night just from that whole period from where we played the night before till six o'clock in the morning just straight fucking partying down a member yeah i'm glad those days are over <laughs> <laughs> i'm just saying you guys are uh it was very very impressive because i know that like i've seen bands fall apart on the road i'm sure you have too like where they hit some sort of a roadblock there's a fight with a member or somebody fucks up or like way too much or they party so hard that like it's just bad and i've seen bands fall apart and not be able to complete tours or 
literally break up right there in the middle of nowhere, like things like that. And uh, I've seen you guys in all kinds of crazy situations where you just play the show the next day, just keep on going. It's fucking cool. That's why we're here. It's what we do, you know? Is it like a, a, just an understood thing between you guys that it's just, we just keep going? Absolutely. Unless there's like a major, major, major fucking problem. Just keep going. Like a volcano goes off or something. Yes, or somebody gets shot in the arm or something like that. You know? <laughs> well, that happened. Uh, well, it was in on that tour in St. Pete. There was the shooting right outside of the show. Yes. Ben and I saw it. It happened like 15 feet in front of us. Yes, I remember that. That was fucking insane. Yeah. <laughs> but luckily, nobody in the group got shot. No, it had nothing to do with us. Dude. Touring in a metal situation is crazy. I have met lots of people from other genres and heard their tour stories. And you don't hear about this kind of stuff generally. I think it's normal, but like talking to people who play in other genres makes me realize that the shit's not normal and metal's crazy. It's like you said, it just becomes like the normal thing. I, I do live streams for my Instagram every Sunday. And I take a bunch of Q&As and stuff. And a lot of people ask, you know, what's the craziest thing you've ever seen on tour? <laughs> and I'm like, well, it's hard to pinpoint because crazy just becomes the fucking normal when you're when we tour, you know. So it's hard to, like, think of a situation that really sticks out that made me say, wow, that was fucking insane. <laughs> Yeah, it's like which time? Exactly. Like you say, it just it becomes like a normal thing, and you kind of become desensitized to it, to where you don't really realize how fucking crazy shit's getting. You know, <laughs> you don't realize it till you go back into regular society, yeah. and you know have to like go to someone's house for dinner or go to some function or something like that. And you realize that that's not how the rest of the world lives. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's probably why you have bands that fall apart when they go on tour. It's actually to do with the personality types, whether or not they can hack those fucking crazy moments. And the reason it doesn't happen in other genres is probably because pop acts don't get booked to play in Hamtrank. <laughs> <laughs> You think that's part of it is just the the venues are higher class or something like that? Yeah, I mean, the pop acts, you know, they're not playing Mark Showplace in New Hampshire. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm just going to assume here that their normal show, their everyday thing when you go on tour to pop act is a lot more calmer. And more like geared to a, like a normal person would function <laughs> rather than the situation that me and you have been in. Yeah, it's like you're not going to encounter those kinds of situations at the Four Seasons or on your private jet. No, absolutely not. Do you like the crazy side of it or do you just see it as part of what comes with the territory. I fucking love it. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is. I guess it's because of my personality or whatever, but I I thrive on it. I love it. I love the fucking chaos and the unpredictability and what's going to happen next kind of fucking thing. It's interesting because I think that what I guess a more normal person would be into is 
being able to predict a routine, being able to kind of, I mean, you never know in life, anything can happen anywhere, but like to kind of know that every, the schedule the next day is as such. And these are the events that are going to happen. And then at a certain hour I'm done and repeat and repeat. And I think that that's what most normal people thrive on actually. Yes. It's like a normal schedule that you know what's going to happen every day. You know, sound check's going to be at three. Then we're going to have dinner at five. Then I go back to the motel and I'll be back at eight to play. And that's the normal thing for a lot of bands that are on a bigger scale to where when we were touring together, it was just like, whatever happens, happens. You get to a fucking venue, <laughs> you, you load in at the five o'clock in the afternoon you might get a sound check you might not you, <laughs> they, the owner said you're gonna play at 10 but you're probably gonna play at 12 you just don't know what you're getting yourself into basically exactly you know every every day it's something new brown what you said is that uh i think is interesting about how uh, that is why a lot of bands break up or people leave is they're not ready for that type of environment and i remember once we took out this keyboard player as like a fill-in um before we ended up settling on just using backing tracks to the click for all the synths and stuff but we tried an actual keyboard player on a tour and brought him on as a fill-in and it was just a horrible horrible fit the dude was not he just couldn't hang he could not hang and then when we got to his hometown uh which was new york city he made up an excuse like that he was sick and he just left the tour and that was that like two weeks in so yeah like brown like you said like i when i was close to home I could have just bailed and I I've seen that happen and yep. I've seen that happen like and the guy he wasn't like a bad guy or anything like that he wasn't like a, a shitty musician or anything like that he just psychologically could not handle the chaos he was not built for it and it's understandable it's fucking mental you know you can't expect everyone to to really want to do it I mean there's been situations where I've been on the edge the same and i'm sure that you two have as well like i just have to say one word argentina <laughs> argentina was the time when i thought i wasn't going to do it anymore why no i'm not even going to talk about it. i don't want to talk about it <laughs> that wow bad. yeah it was just fucked basically just imagine being in the most uncomfortable situation ever no food really long fucking drives in a bus that had a cracked windscreen <laughs> and then the bus driver stealing your shit oh shit <laughs> One of those. <laughs> oh, yeah. The beds weren't clean either. It was fucked. I've never been more upset than in that moment. I don't blame you. <laughs> Brown's played some places that you would expect to test people like Cambodia or whatever. And you actually said it was pretty cool. Oh, I went on holiday to Cambodia. Oh, I thought you played Cambodia. We've played in India uh, ah, a few okay. times. That's actually always been great, to be honest. Australia definitely is up there as well as difficult because obviously you fly at six o'clock in the morning and then you have to play a show the same day. That really tests patience as well, you know, because you're not, you're not really sleeping for a week after a 24-hour flight, but Argentina wins. Yeah, Sammy, how do, you, how do you deal with the sleep deprivation aspect? What I used to do is uh, a lot of cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one way. 
it's one way to uh, fight uh, sleep deprivation, but you know, I don't, I don't fuck with that shit no more. It's just trying to find a place to nap. You know, you you'd be surprised. Well, you know, if you get in a nap for like fucking half an hour before you play, you'll feel like uh, nothing ever happened. Then after you play, just try to fucking chill out. You know, and just go somewhere and try to get rest. You know. Well, I mean, even though it might not be the most optimal situation of rest, you know, it you, you know you'd be surprised at what the body, what the human body can handle when it comes to uh, sleep deprivation. I used to have horrible insomnia, so I uh, am very familiar with just how little uh, sleep I can get away with, and it's kind of amazing. And that, yeah, you just kind of take it where you can get it. Exactly, it's the only way to really do it, you know. Unless you, you know, let's say like uh, John was talking about in Australia, you know, after sound check or whatever, you just go to the hostel or the hotel and try to sleep for an hour or two before the show if you possibly can, you know? Uh, that was always hard for me. It was hard for me to like disconnect enough to go to sleep before a show, but. Well, I mean, like, like John was saying in Australia, dude, you're fucking, you get done with the show at two o'clock in the morning. You're on a plane at five o'clock in the morning, you know what I'm saying? And then you get to wherever you're going and, you know, repeat process. So, you know, you, after about two or three days, you have no problem <laughs> sleeping anywhere. anywhere. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like even, uh, you get used to sleeping on planes as well. It just happens. Like you get to a point where your body just literally just does it. Yeah. And Jack Daniels helps too. <laughs> yep, I have to agree with you on that. If you do drink or do drugs, it's a point of almost medicating yourself to get to the point <laughs> of performing, you know? Do you think that it's possible to get as like into it or as creative or just as like locked in with whatever like that energy is sober? Yes. I mean, I've been sober for, it's going to be two years in December. Congrats. Thank you. You know, we've, we've done a couple of, you know, we did the live stream thing, and but that was really awkward because you're playing to no one. Then I did a, a small set with Crowbar where I played guitar for some of the records that I played on with them like a couple of months ago. We did a show in New Orleans. And, uh, uh, you know, that was the first time I've ever been on stage sober was that show. And the awesome thing about that was that I could remember every second of play, you know, to where if you go on stage with a buzz or whatever, you know, you're not really processing everything, you know, and especially during this whole COVID bullshit, you know, I never really realized how much. I really love playing live. So, you know, I from now on, I, I never want to take that feeling for granted ever again. And I, would, I want to remember every second that I play on stage for the rest of my life, you know? I do think back to, like, non-sober tours, and it is kind of like a haze. Like, kind of remember some highlights, but kind of not. Yeah. But I remember shooting. You know, <laughs> like, like that, that sticks out. That's kind of something that you don't really forget that someone got shot in the venue right next to you, which is about 15 feet away. 
Yeah. In front of my face like that, you know, you remember things like that, but, uh, but like, yeah, you don't remember the full onstage experience or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. It just, it just becomes like every day, you know, something you do every day when you're on tour, you know, and you know, when you're drinking or doing drugs or whatever, before you play, I'm not, I'm not, you know, talking bad about it. I've done it for years, you know, but you know, you don't really realize how much you're really enjoying yourself, you know, and you know, you just, you're just fucked up going through the motions of playing rather than, you know, you don't, you don't really, um, I'm going to, you know, you don't really fully understand how much fun you're actually having until it's like taking away, taken away from you, you know, and that's what kind of, you know, made me want to stop messing around with all that stuff. Cause you know, I, you know, being a COVID basically took my livelihood away and I, you know, I couldn't do anything about it no matter how hard I tried. You know, I, I don't want to you know jeopardize those memories anymore by, you know, drinking and doing drugs and doing something that I actually love is just playing on stage. You know, I want to remember every second and every note that I play on stage for the rest of my life. Makes a lot of sense. It's weird how this human nature thing about basically taking things for granted until something shitty happens. Exactly. It's supernatural. I don't mean like supernatural, like ghosts. I mean, it's very natural for people to do that. I think we do that with lots of stuff and we don't realize we're doing it. But uh, so it takes some sort of a crisis or calamity or uh, tragedy or something like that to get people to be like, oh, holy shit, was uh, taking that for granted the whole time. Exactly. You know, that's, that's, that's my point being that I was just trying to make. Yeah, it's interesting to me. Uh, I've had the problem of good stuff happening and just not giving a fuck that it's happening. It's And then being like, why don't I care? I should care. Exactly. What should have been some of the best times of my life, I could barely remember. Yeah, same, same here. What about you, Brown? Obviously, I haven't really drunk since COVID happened either. I've drank enough free beer and free booze on tour to probably last my entire life. But as far as taking things for granted or not remembering anything, like uh, obviously there's moments, but I probably didn't party as hard as some other people. I was always quite calm, really. Occasionally, you know, <laughs> little vomit in a bucket. <laughs> <laughs> But I've not, I've not like pissed my bunk or anything. I've never been that drunk. So I've actually remembered quite a lot of things. I've never pissed in my bunk either. Me either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a level I've never gotten to. <laughs> yeah. There's some people I've heard of it happening, but it's never happened to me. I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. I've seen it a few times. Have you? Okay. Yeah. Vomit down the side, all of it. I can tell you guys a really funny story as far right. as. Getting drunk, pissing. <laughs> it's a good start. <laughs> we were we, we were on tour in Europe, where it was like us, uh, Skeleton Witch, and Toxic Holocaust. So we were all sharing Sprinter vans. Well, no, the two bands were sharing. The three bands were sharing two Sprinter vans. So for the entire tour, which wasn't a big deal, we were all friends. It's all cool, but we we get hostels every night everybody to sleep and then a couple of people which you know you put two or three people in a hostel whatever you know people pick your buddy for the night and hang out with him so we were i think uh where was it it was in poland possibly or somewhere around there we're partying okay like we were we were going fucking crazy that night so the they kicked us out of the bar 
So we're like, fuck it, we're going to get a bunch of fucking beer and go back to the hostel and hang out. So we had like fucking five or six rooms. Everybody's just on this floor, just like going from room to room, drinking, doing whatever. So everything kind of calms down for a second. Hell, you ever met James, our bass player that replaced Nathan? Uh Uh-huh, I did. Okay, so it was James. So James is in this room, and I believe he was with uh, maybe the drummer and the guitar player for Skeleton Witch. They're sharing their hostel. And their room was right next to mine. And uh, I think I was in there with like Ben and Zach. I hear, you know, everything's starting to chill out. And uh, James is throwing the beer cans out of the window of the hostel when he gets done with them. And uh, I guess like the lady that owned the hostel or the girl that was at the fucking uh, desk or whatever comes up and starts beating on his door. Okay. And it was like, you must keep it quiet. It is very late at night. <laughs> so you hear her walking down the hall and you hear James go, fuck off. And then you hear the lady <laughs> at the end of the hall go, I heard sis fuck off. <laughs> well, anyway, getting to my point of the pissing. Uh, so needless to say, shit was getting wild that night. So shit calms down. Everybody, you know, wake up, wakes up the next day. And, uh, we get to the venue, and there's an email to like the, uh, the tour manager saying, "I got this email from the hostel that we stayed in last night, and in room 187, they claimed there was a demolition, and someone used the bed as a toilet." And I was like, <laughs> "Who was in that room?" And you see James's face just kind of drop. It's like, "Who was in that room?" It's like <laughs> James was like, "Me." <laughs> and we go, well, well, what the fuck happened man it's like nothing everything was fine I'm like James did you piss the bed <laughs> and he goes no well maybe a little <laughs> maybe a little <laughs> so yeah apparently James got so drunk that night that he pissed himself in the bed in the hostel oh, poor guy <laughs> yeah <laughs> So that was so, so that was the whole thing for a while to where it was like, no, well, maybe a little. <laughs> maybe a little. <laughs> Probably never let him live it down either. No. No. <laughs> Once you piss the bed, like mark for life. Once you piss the bed, it's been known publicly like that, you're a target. Yeah, there's no getting out of that. No. And he always sleeps on the bottom bunk. <laughs> <laughs> That yeah, was a, that, that was that was the rule from then on. Bottom bunk right next to the toilet. I didn't even think of that, but that's so logical that if someone's pissing the bed, they got to take a bottom bunk. Of course, that would suck to be under that. James is a big guy, so I'm sure he pisses a lot. <laughs> a lot of capacity. Yeah, exactly. Dude, so tell us about uh those uh, the limited run signature. It sold out in 2 minutes. In the U.S., it sold out in two minutes, and worldwide, it sold out in less than 24 hours. Because what we did was we – let me start from the beginning again. So there's this uh, guitar store in Wisconsin called Chandro Guitars. How do you spell it? C-H-O-N-D-R-O. Okay. It's pronounced Chandro Guitars. But anyway, this guy, like all he does is order like custom shop Jackson's. Custom shop ESPs, custom shop, like, just, like, one-of-a-kind, high-dollar, insane guitar. And he uh, 
you know, I was a really big fan of his store being the shit that he would get in his store was just out of control. Like a custom, a custom shop, one of a kind, BC rich iron bird with a quilt top, like just crazy expensive shit. I was following him on Instagram or something like that. And just some kind of way we got to talking and uh, he wanted to order an ESP custom shop like replica of one of my guitars we had to go through the whole process of like they had to get my permission to do it and line up the royalties and all that crap but he was only going to order one so it's going to be only one guitar it's going to be between six and eight thousand dollars oh damn he's got some expensive guitars i'm looking at this right now yes do you see what i'm talking about yeah i do okay yeah he was like look i want to order a custom shop a version replica of one of your customs that you play for the shop and sell it. And I was like, yeah, no problem. Here's the person you got to talk to at ESP to make it happen, blah, blah, blah. So we made that happen. And um, he posted like that he was getting the guitar. And of course, being that it's like a custom shop, one of a kind, it's going to be like a, between six and $8,000 guitar. So, he was being that the response to that was so positive. He was like, what do you think about doing a small run of like LTD versions, like 30? And I was like, if ESP bites on that, I'm hundred percent behind it. So he footed all the money to get the 30 LTD versions of this guitar. And, uh, and then once he announced it, like the, the reaction was like insane, you know, cause it's a pretty, it's a pretty extreme looking guitar. You know, it's, it's very pointy. Pointy. That's a good description. Yes. Very pointy. He footed the bill. He paid for the 30. Then he, then he was like, look, when we get close to when the guitars are going to be ready, we're going to do a pre-order at such and such a date. And when the pre-orders went up, they, you know, I was actually, I was talking, I was on the, it went on, they, the pre-orders went up at like six o'clock uh, afternoon. Uh, it was like on a Friday or something. And uh, I was talking to one of my friends, like immediately after the pre-order went up, he's like, dude, I got one. So I mean, like at six, like 601, my friend called me. It was like, I got one, man. Cool. And then at 602, uh, Randall, like Conjuro Guitars calls me. And I see the phone ring and I'm still talking to my friend. And I'm like, this is either, this is either really good or really bad. So <laughs> I'm like, let me go. Let me talk to Randall. So I uh, pick up the phone with Randall from Conjuro. I'm like, what's, what's going on? He goes, they're gone. They're all gone. And I'm like, what do, what do you mean? He's like, you sold out of all the fucking guitars in two minutes. It's amazing. Yeah. I'm like, because I thought, you know, they were going to sell out because there were only 30, but it would have been like maybe a month or two before they were all gone. I was like, are you fucking serious? Are you, are you joking? It's like all the ones that are available in the U.S. sold out in two minutes, just sold out. I don't have any more. My register, I have 800 people in my register trying to buy this guitar. They can't buy it because they're all sold out. That's great. It was a, it was a good day. Congratulations. Oh, thank you, John. That is super sick. Two minutes. Yeah, that's really, really good. That's insane. Yeah. I'll show you one. I have one right here. I mean, for this guitar to sell in two minutes, it's kind of crazy because it's pretty extreme. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's pointy as fuck. Yeah, that's awesome. I want one. Yeah, that's definitely metal as fuck. That was a sick guitar. Yeah, it's not a Telecaster. 
<laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. You know, I never expected anything like this to even happen, you know. If anything, actually, Contra Guitars, them doing that run probably solidified to the guys at ESP that they should do something with you. If anything, it probably really helped. Yes, but yeah, it came out fantastic. They they nailed everything. Like, I could pick up that guitar and play it on stage without batting an eye. If I could ever imagine you having a signature, that's what it would have looked like in my head. Well, yeah, exactly. It, it fits. Yeah, totally. Brown, what happened with yours? Well, my signature? Yeah. Condra actually sells the company that I am endorsed by, Mayonez. They're based out of Poland. And um, they were going to do a limited edition run of 20. I think it might have even only been 12. Went to NAM 2016 and they sold 85. Jesus. That's awesome. It was great, yeah, because the guitars are like $4,000, $5,000 each. So we were only going to do 12. And I said to them, why don't you just leave it open and just see what happens? Don't like put a number on it. Just see what happens at NAM. And they did and that happened. It was great because, you know, it's a $5,000 fucking dollar guitar. <laughs> I don't, I, I would never be able to afford to pay $5,000 for a guitar, you know? Exactly. That's awesome, man. Who buys $5,000 guitars? That's what I've always wondered. <laughs> Nutcases. Because I never had a guitar that was that expensive. And just about everyone I know that's a professional guitarist also pretty much almost never have guitars that are that expensive. Unless it was, you know, part of an endorsement. Well, yeah, but they didn't buy it then. So that's what I'm wondering is like, who buys those guitars? You? In my defense, I've <laughs> never spent $5,000 on a guitar, but I have come close. <laughs> <laughs> but this, you know, this particular guitar that I'm talking about, you know, it was a guitar that I've been looking for since I was a kid. It's a, it's a 1984 Jackson Randy Rhodes with a Floyd Rhodes. Okay. So they don't make them like that anymore. And ever since when I was a kid, I saw that guitar, the black with the gold hardware, just like Randy had. I've always wanted one, but I didn't want a new one. I wanted an old one, a period correct one. So I came across one actually, which is crazy because it was actually at a shop in New Orleans. Just by chance. Yeah. I was looking online and, you know, I was like, look, if I find the right one online that's in a good shape, that's in a good year, that's exactly what I want. I'll allow myself to spend like $3,000 on it maximum because I really wanted this guitar. The exact one that I had been looking for popped up in New Orleans. And another good thing, which is crazy, is that it popped up in this new guitar shop called Inlow Guitars, and it's all just, they just, it's all used stuff. They don't do any, like, new stuff, but it's all, like, vintage, crazy, expensive stuff that they have in their store. So I, I came across the store. I had no idea that the store existed at the time until I found the guitar because they had it posted in their Reverb store. And I'm like, well, they have a shop right down the street from where I live. I never knew this was open. I'm going to go down and fucking play the guitar before I buy it, make sure I like it, being able to drop a bunch of goddamn money on it. So I get to the shop and I'm checking out the guitars and there's a guy working the counter or whatever. He, he knew who I was. I was like, man, this shop's awesome. And he's like, well, you know, the, the guy that I, I knew, the guy that opened the shop, it wasn't the guy that was working behind the counter. He's like, this guy named Bill. He's like, well, Bill will be here in a little while. I'm like, Bill, Bill Inlow. He's like, yeah. 
Bill Enlow, because the guitar is called Enlow Guitar Shop. I was like, well, I had no idea that he was going to open up a store. So it ended up that I knew the guy who owned the shop. So I didn't really pay $4,000 for the guitar. <laughs> I traded in like a Les Paul and a, like a thousand bucks and I got the guitar. Oh, that's not so bad. Yeah. I mean, I don't play Les Pauls. I don't know why I had it. <laughs> yeah. That seems like a perfectly good thing to offload. Yeah. I mean, I it's it was brand new. It was a beautiful guitar. It had a nice fucking like a, a flame maple top on it with like a tobacco burst. It was like a legit nice one, but it was like in brand new condition. I got it in a trade, some kind of way. And, uh, it was just sitting in a case in the corner. You know, I never, I picked it up once I strummed it. I was like, yeah, this is why I don't play less balls. Man. That is one guitar type that I don't know anyone who plays them anymore. Slash. Well, I mean that aside, you know, like, like the classics who play them still, still, but like, I'm talking about like, uh, newer guitar players, like you don't really see Les Pauls as, as like the guitar. And I feel like when I was growing up, they were very much like the cool guitar or one of the cool guitars that people had. That was the guitar to have, you know? Yeah, absolutely. The whole thing I think is possibly is that, the, you know, the advancements in guitar building and making a guitar that actually plays fantastic and stays in tune and stays in tune <laughs> and sounds really good have moved away from the whole Les Paul thing, you know? That's a polite way to put it. <laughs> but still, the strats are still really popular. Yes, they are. I don't think it's necessarily that. I think it's maybe something else. I guess strats were just properly built, though. No, that's actually a good point. There you go. Yeah. Like I had a Les Paul had a couple and like there's just structural problems with them they're weighted weird they don't stay in tune they break super easily like tone can be kind of weird like there's all there's just problems that strats don't have strats just a very well designed built guitar yeah yeah it's too much of a risk with a les paul because i mean if you get a good les paul you have a damn good guitar but if you yes. get a bad les paul might as well just throw it in the garbage. And you don't know what you're going to get. <laughs> exactly. It's too much of a gamble, you know? A good Les Paul is kind of magical. It is. Uh, I will admit that, you know, being that I'm not the biggest Les Paul fan, I have played some, like, older ones that just, like, it just melts into your hands, you know what I'm saying? It just, it feels right. I used to work for a vintage guitar shop in London, and uh, I have delivered a few 59 Les Pauls in my time. Obviously, you can't insure them because how do you replace something like that? And a couple of them were outstanding. A couple of them yeah. were dog shit, but... Yeah, exactly. The ones that were played were outstanding. The ones that were museum pieces were not, basically. The ones that ha were loved yeah. basically seemed to fix themselves somehow just from being played. Broken in, or do you think that they were played because they were awesome? All Both. that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, because the ones that are not awesome are very difficult to play. And what I've noticed with guitars that I've owned that are not like player friendly is, well, I mean, it doesn't, it's not rocket science. I never play those guitars as much as the ones that are more friendly to play. And so I, I feel like probably most people are like that, that they got to fight the guitar or it sounds kind of weird. They're just going to pick another one. I, I mean, why not? I would. Yeah. Exactly. It's just kind of a logical thing. Yeah, if, if I'm not liking it, then I'll just move on to another one. It's not the last guitar in the world. 
And you got the Randy Rhodes. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> I am very happy that I got that guitar. Epic win. That's one of those guitars that doesn't come out the case very often. I don't know how I lucked out, but if for, the, for being the guitar from 1984, and especially that shape, and from that era, the guitar is like immaculate. There is like no scratches, no dents, no dings. Whoever had it before me didn't play it. That's a lucky find. So it's like a double-edged sword because you found the guitar you were looking for, but you got to keep it. It's like a pristine, fragile, delicate thing that don't want to fuck up. I have a uh, a surrogate one that I can actually let me let me show you real quick. This yeah, one, yeah, show this us. one, this one's definitely It's the same year, same exact guitar, but it looks a little different. All right, yeah, show us. Let's see. So you got two of them. Yeah, I guess so. Damn! Watch it out. A headstock has been broken off like seventeen times. Oh man. <laughs> Yeah, that one has definitely been through it. As you can see, it's it's been beat to shit. 80s Jackson's man of the one. Absolutely. But that's the one that I pick up when I want to pay the expensive one. I pick up that one. <laughs> <That's> smart. <laughs> They're virtually like almost exactly the same. It's the same year, same hardware, same everything. So, you know, if I drop that one, I'm not really worried about it. Yeah, that that's a smart way to to handle the situation. Yeah. I but, think. but every once in a while, you know, I just, yeah, it's still there. Put it back in still the case. Record. <laughs> how, <laughs> exactly. many guitar, how many guitars do you own? 30 maybe. Like, yeah. I mean, I see the, the cases behind you. Yeah. It's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 20, there's 22 in here. And there's uh, like, Ten more in the next row. Nice. It's a good collection. Yeah, man. So we're like almost out of time. There's one more thing I want to ask you about. Kurt Ballou. Yes. He's going to be mixing, or he did mix. He's going to be mixing the new Go to Record starting at the beginning of next month. I believe on August first or second, he starts the actual mix. That's so awesome. That seems like such an appropriate choice. We've been thinking about it for a while. We were going to do it on the last record, but he wasn't available. So we just, we didn't want to wait around. We wanted to put the record out. So we just kind of went with who we went with. This time, everything kind of just fell into place and he was available and everything worked out. So we'll see what happens. I've always been curious about what you guys would sound like with him. Like that's something that I always was hoping would happen because he just seems like... He's got the right aesthetic. Yes, I, I'm very excited about this. I'm, I'm curious to see what he comes back with. Let's put it that way. Yeah, he's got this thing where his records sound huge and like, you know, they're competitive against modern mixes, but they sound raw and nasty and ugly and in all the best ways. Yes, I agree with you 100%. That's kind of why we've been wanting to work with him, you know, because he just... He has that thing that he does where everything just explosive is a good word to describe his mixes. Yeah, they do sound like they're exploding. Like I felt like black metal production wouldn't do you guys right. No. You guys are too crushing for that. Like you needed to find a way, in my opinion, as an outsider, a way to like both sound, like you said, explosive, but then also sound raw enough that it did it justice aesthetically. So I think that's a great choice. 
Yes, the typical black metal production would not work with us at all. No, you're too heavy. I like too much low end. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, I love that production on straight up European black metal on especially the older stuff. Like, I think it there's something awesome about the way that stuff sounds, but I feel like it would be detrimental to what you guys do. Absolutely. You know, it, you know, it's all it's all how the band is, you know, basically. You know, I mean, it works for like Dark Throne and Mayhem mm-hmm. and Emperor, you know, it works for them. It wouldn't work for us, you know. You know, whose mixes I have very much enjoyed is uh, Satyricon's newer mixes. I, I know that there's a, some people love them, some people hate them. <laughs> yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of mixed opinions about them. Yeah. But I love them just because they're so fucking dry. They're like bone dry. The thing with Satyricon, I think, is, is that they're trying to keep that black metal attitude of like the production wise, like keep it kind of raw and dry, but still have it sound good. You know what I'm saying? Yes. It's actually really hard to do. Yes. It seems like it would be easy, but it's not. No, I think the easiest thing to do when you're going for raw is to make it sound like shit. Because like, <laughs> raw, raw and shit kind of go together. Uh, usually, like it takes, like to do what Kurt does is super impressive because raw doesn't usually go along with good sounding when it comes to heavy music. There's a fine line between it being raw and sounding good and raw and it just sounded like fucking ass. Yeah, which is normal, I think. That's normal. It takes some talent to pull it off to when it sounds good, you know? It's kind of like organized chaos, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and Kurt was responsible for what I converge, right? Yep. Yeah, he's fucking sick. It makes sense. (laughs) I feel like it, it requires the right band, too. It needs a band who sounds good in a room in order to pull it off. Like, it's not just the mixer or producer being able to pull it off. Like you can't do that with a band that doesn't know how to actually sound badass live. Yes. That, that, that has a lot to do with it. You know, with a lot of modern metal production, you can get away with murder as far as taking really bad musicians and making them sound like they're really good musicians and making up for stuff that's just not there in the music. Um, I mean, it's always better if the bands are badass, always. But oh, yeah. you can get away with a lot. But if you want to do something that sounds raw, you can't get away with shit. Like, it's got to be there in the DNA. Yes, absolutely. You know, I mean, that's the whole you know point of it being raw is that it can't be all copy and paste and quantize and all that stuff you know it's gotta have that element of almost where it's kind of wavering almost but not drastically you know to where it has that human feel to it yeah i heard it on the new the newest slayer record as well you can hear that some of the kicks aren't like mechanically tight but it still sounded fucking awesome I've always loved their production. Yeah. Slayer always sounds like Slayer. I'm very sad that they're not doing this anymore. Do you think it's forever? No. I don't either. I'm sure in a couple of more years, if everybody's still around, you'll be like, eh, well, let's just do this one show in like New York City and just be this big, insane Madison Square Garden thing, you know? Do you remember No More Tours? Yes. How many times is that going on? Yeah, exactly. When bands are like, I mean, obviously Slayer and Ozzy are two different levels of success, but still Slayer is classic 
and huge. And um, I feel like those bands, like they don't usually just break up for good. They just take breaks. Yeah, that's what I think's going on. You know, they're probably just going to take a break for about maybe t- seven, ten years. And then all of a sudden, boom, Slayer's back. I'd be cool with it. Yeah, I have. I, I hope that happens, actually. Yeah, I love their mixes because they also have that like nasty thing going on, but they're like in your face and they keep up with the times. I like that too. Like, I don't like, I think that retro sounding mixes are cool for the time. Like, if you listen to something badass from the 80s, cool. But I feel like, you know, people have gotten, I don't want to say better at mixing, but there's new tools. And uh, I like when things sound competitive, but without throwing away what was cool about the older stuff. And so I feel like the Slayer stuff does both. Like it keeps up with the times as far as quality goes, but it still stays raw and like in your face and dirty and real and all those cool things. Yes, I agree with you 100%. Also, have you ever played with them? Funny story. Uh, I'm sure John Brown is familiar with the Bloodstock Festival. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, so we we played Bloodstock Festivals a couple of years ago, and Slayer opened for us. What? How? We went on stage after Slayer. How did you feel about that? I felt amazing because I was expecting to turn around and get on the stage and be like 15 people watching me play after Slayer because nobody wants to see anybody after Slayer, you know? And the show actually was like, I remember getting on stage and I was sitting on my back line and stuff right when Slayer finished. So we're getting all the amps set up and all that stuff and everything mic'd. Well, actually, we were we were playing on two different stages. Slayer was on the big stage, and we were on the Sophie Lancaster stage, which was like the second biggest stage. So we were setting up stuff. There was a couple of people just straggling around. I was like, "Yeah, this is gonna be a this will be a rough one, guys." We get everything dialed in. And I go off the stage to like uh, get a couple of drinks and put on my spikes and stuff. And I come back, and I'm back behind the curtain put my guitar on and there was a guy there helping me with like the amps and stuff. And I just was like, so how bad is it out there? And he goes, take a look. And he opens up the curtain and it's fucking packed. I'm like, holy fucking shit. I'm like that. I was not expecting to happen. So Slayer opened up for us when we played (laughs) with them. That's awesome. And Bloodstock's a great festival. You don't expect to hear that story about playing with Slayer. And and actually, a lot of people watching you play after Slayer plays. That's impressive, actually. That that was a good night. What year was this? I'm pretty sure it was 2018. So they were already in, like, their, like, victory lap, too. Yes. So that makes it especially awesome. Uh, 2016, John. 16. Did I go that year? I can't remember anymore. Yeah, like I said, I had to look it up. (laughs) I can't even remember. Well, Sammy, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out with us. And uh, it's been awesome to catch up, man. Thank you guys for having me, man. This was probably one of the best interviews I've ever done. Awesome. Well, glad to hear that. Enjoyed it very much. Uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. This was <laughs> this was awesome. This is how it should be, you know? I agree. Just chatting. Yeah, man. But John, it was nice to meet you as well. Uh, it's lovely to meet you too, Sammy. We should. Uh, I'm going to add you on Instagram and we should... Uh, nerd out and you can show me your randall setup i got you not a problem 
<laughs> Perfect. I wasn't just kissing his ass. The guy has some of the most stellar rhythm tone and uh, like right hand chops I've ever seen in my entire life. And you've toured with him twice, right? More than that. I think we've toured three times or something. <laughs> Two and a half months once. That's like three yeah. tours in one. So let's call it five. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen Goat Whore live many times. Is it sick? Yeah, they're great. He's got something super unique about the way he sounds. Sounds like he figured out what it was, but I really haven't heard anything like it before or since. Like he's just got his own thing going on and it's tight as fuck. I always love when you uh when you find those individuals and you tend to find them mostly on tour. You see it in real life. Yeah, I mean you you wouldn't really know otherwise. There's even badass metal recordings that don't communicate the power of someone who really moves air like that. Yeah. It was um, really interesting to me when he was talking about the uh, the guitarist of uh, Celtic Frost, the guitar with the toe knob. It sounds to me like almost like that guitar was wired up wrong or something. And it was like a lucky mistake because, you know, normally when you turn the toe knob down, it normally just sounds like shit on every guitar. <laughs> yeah. Like a muddy pile of garbage. Yeah. I mean, I don't even have toe knobs on my guitar. I wasn't expecting <laughs> to hear that that's how he figured it out, but I'm not surprised either that um, that he does something super unconventional because I'm telling you, he has a very unique sound happening. And I know what he meant about the harmonic. Like, it sounds like there's like another layer to the distortion he's using that I don't hear with other guitar players. Like, there's something going on that just makes it sound sweeter or something. So is it kind of the difference like when, you know, when you plug into a message or rectifier and you just let a chord ring out on it and it, you can hear all these extra layers of harmonics happening in the distortion. Is it kind of like that, but on a level where it happens with every note that it's being added by the player rather than by the tone? Yeah, but it doesn't sound fuzzy like the way a Mesa does. Oh, I'm not, not talking about the, you know, I'm just talking about the overtones and yes. the harmonics yeah, within you, the Mesa yeah, sound. You can, yeah, there, he's got that extra stuff happening. Yeah, but he worked it out with his hand, which is in a way just fucking crazy. Yeah. And you hear it, you hear it like in everything he's doing. But uh, But the thing is, like when we're talking about harmonics and distortion and me saying that there's something extra, someone could interpret that as me saying there's like an extra layer of noise. But that's not at all what I'm saying. There's like an extra layer of texture that sounds amazing. So obviously he's picking hard, so he's got the extra attack from the mm -hmm. pick. And also, also really interested me that he says he turns his tone knobs down for the top end. So almost to me sounds like he's creating his sort of wall of sound and then adding his picking technique on top to add the extra attack yeah. with the harmonic as well. I th think so. And you know, a lot of extreme metal bands, you see them play and it's all this like assault of high end and it's real hard to listen to. Yeah. You don't hear that with Goat Whore. Like you don't get the the high end uh, knives in your ears. Because he's controlling it with his picking. Yeah. Seems like it. It's got to be what it is. Genius. He sounds like a genius. He definitely thinks about guitars on a deeper level. It's really interesting when you find people like that. The basically the space between notes. I know I talk about that a lot, but it's 
so important thinking about it on that level. Yeah. And he's got the space between his notes. Perfect. Um, that's, that was something I noticed too, is that, uh, he's got this separation between his notes timing wise that is, uh, unreal. Is it just ridiculous? It's just, it's just feels right. So basically everything's consistent, but just sounds extra awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, like a lot of times when people are like alternate picking eighth notes, like Paul muted or something, it can sound like alternate picked eighth notes. Every individual pick stroke doesn't have like its own like identity or something like its own space. When he does every single one matters. It's interesting. So it's almost like a, a drummer that can play. It's a drummer that can actually do his job. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. You're talking that it doesn't have the smoothness of the alternate pick. You know, an alternate picking normally sounds smoother than down picking, for example. So I think that he's just honed his skill to where the attack is present with his harmonic overtone, where every single individual note he hits just has that extra that a lot of people don't have. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um you can develop that though. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Um I know it's funny uh cuz he was talking about upstrokes and uh and we've got the down picking gym, but if you get good at down picking, you have to play upstrokes. Down down picking is the same technique. You're just missing out the uh the upstroke part and I mean focusing on both is never a bad thing, but getting good at down picking for the riffs that you can down pick. It does sound fucking sick. It does. And I think that you should get really good at it. I do understand the logic that he's got for working on the upstrokes. Yeah, I do too. And uh, I think Wes also does that. He does. Yeah. Go figure. He's consistent as fuck too. And he has the same thing that you're talking about, the separation on the alternate yep. picks where you can hear every individual note. It jumps out of the, the amp or... You know, you can hear it jump out when he plays, even just acoustically, you can hear it. Yeah. But let me just say, both of these guys are fucking great at downpicking. They started to develop upstrokes once they already were downpicking gods. You have to kind of know it all for that style of music as well. You do. It's just an extra technique to add to your ever-growing vocabulary for the noise. <laughs> Tell me if you think this would be a cool idea, but uh, I think that... If you go through the down picking gym and want to get really good at upstrokes, just take the same exact exercises, but invert them picking wise. You could do that. Yeah, for sure. 100%. Why wouldn't it work? There's no reason why it wouldn't. It would. Yeah, they would. I'm just saying that for people who are listening and who have gone through the down picking gym or are going through it and uh, are thinking to themselves, well, I should probably get good at this upstroke stuff. You can just go through the down picking gym and uh, reverse the picking. And hate your life for a little while. Yeah, hate it for a little <laughs> while. But you will definitely get better. And then once you combine the two, then you'll have a very consistent alternate pick. Yeah, you know, uh, I also worked on upstrokes for a while too. And whenever I did, I found that all my rhythm playing got better. Everything feeds into itself. If you improve on one skill, it's going to enhance another. Yeah, absolutely. Um, however, I do think, I mean, what is there besides down and up? But I have found that both when I have focused on down picking or on up picking, like in isolation, 
I guess. I'm trying to not be like, oh, just focus on picking and you'll get better. When focusing on either one of those in isolation, so you're doing specifically upstroking exercises or specifically stuff like the down picking gym, it helps every aspect of my playing. Yep. wholeheartedly agree. I think that what it comes down to is actually the fact that your hand is in different positions for each of those techniques, whether it's down, you have a certain angle on your pick. And when you're up, you have a slightly different angle. And I think that honing in on that, eventually you close the gap between the the movement that has to change between the two pick positions. It just gets closer, basically. So you're not moving your hand as much. It becomes more economic, for lack of a better word. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So go to riffhard.com, get better at rhythm playing, solve your life. Everyone needs to get better at rhythm playing. Everyone. I agree. Everyone should. Everything you do will get better if you get better at rhythm. 100%. All right, Brown, it's been a pleasure. As always, mate, I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.